Are you ready for the life that God is calling you to live for his glory? Are you, are you ready to live the life where you want more than maybe what you've been experiencing spiritually? I mean, we just sing this amazing song. And it's like, I'm just on my face before God singing, Christ is enough for me. Everything that I need is in you, Jesus. And so we can gather and sing this, but man, I'm just wondering, like in the pits of your soul, deep down to your core of who you are, are you ready for whatever it takes to truly follow Jesus? Because in case you weren't aware, Jesus didn't exactly make it easy. So if, if you haven't heard this before out of Mark 8, beginning in verse 34, this is Jesus says, are you ready for this? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You're thinking, oh, no, I'm not ready for that. Like, actually, I don't know about this. Carry your own cross. He says, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father and with his holy angels. So when I ask you, are you ready? Like, understand what I'm asking you. Because it's not even really me asking you. It is the resurrected Savior, Redeemer, and King of glory who was saying, if you want to sing that I am enough for you and that you have decided to follow me and there's no turning back, count the cost. Be aware of what it is you are saying. But the question for us this morning is, is following Jesus worth it? Is he still your first love? Even if it's hard, is he still worth it? Is following Jesus, having him worth it, even if it means giving up financial security, even if it means giving up comfort, even if it means giving up that thing, and you know what it is that you keep turning to for comfort, that you keep turning to when you're down, that pick-me-up that you keep turning to. Is, is Jesus still worth it if he says, give that up for me? Is he still worth it? What if it means getting sick? What if it means getting your hands dirty or getting beyond your hands? What if it means getting your soul dirty? Because let me tell you something, Jesus got dirty. He touched the lepers. He did so because he loved them and he got dirty and he took our sin. And so we're called to love people the way Jesus did, which means if you do that, heads up, you're going to get dirty because people are messy. And so if you want to live a clean, sanitized existence, then don't follow Jesus, because that's not the call. You see, I don't know exactly what God is calling you in your life to do or what your life is going to look like, but here's what I can tell you is, and I can tell you this from God's word, is that, man, what it's supposed to look like is an epic journey, an epic adventure. And I think like the American church has like made it boring and people in churches across this country are coming and sitting and listening, and they're just 
bored. Man, I pray that you're not bored. And if you are, come talk to me because I can tell you, you won't stay bored because I can get you involved in the lives of other people and you can be in discipleship. And then, oh man, then you're going to see, then you're going into nitty gritty, into the, into the real, into the dirty, into the transformation, into the beautiful. And then the thing is, you see, this thing called following Jesus is not like a West Texas road that is so flat you can see for like 100 miles. It's not like that. It's more like being on a mountainous journey where there are sharp cliffs and winding roads and this epic adventure where there are fierce enemies that want to come destroy you. And so I feel like we have sanitized following Jesus to be kind of like a casual stroll in the zoo where you're walking and it's perfectly manicured and you can go put your quarter and turn the crank and, and get the little pellets and throw it to the, the ducks and, and then you can go see these wild, ferocious animals that are basically tamed and they're at such a far distance with the chasm between you that you can, that you can see the sleeping lion from a safe distance. And you think, oh, I'm in the wild. No, you're not. You're in a zoo. There's no danger of being eaten up at the zoo. No danger. You can see the wild, but you are perfectly safe. On the way out, I get an ice cream and call it a day. It's like, yay, what an adventure. Following Jesus is like being in the wild. Not a zoo. Where there's real, savage, wild animals and fierce enemies that you can't see hiding in the bush, and they can, and if you are not paying attention, they will eat you up. It is not safe. Following Jesus is not safe. He never said it would be safe. He said it was the opposite. And yet somehow we have forgotten these such basic biblical truths and we have created a, a brand of Christianity that says you can be safe and healthy and comfortable and just give your Thai dollars and sit and just watch the smoke in, in, in the show and just be entertained. And that is not what it means to follow Jesus. So when I ask you, are you ready? What I'm talking about is for real following Jesus. Where there's a real enemy and real risk and real danger. But there's also eternal purpose and lasting pleasure. And an indescribable, glorious prize. And his name is Jesus. He is the prize and he is worth it. So as we're continuing in this series in Revelation, we're in chapter 2 looking at the church in Smyrna. And this is a personal message from resurrected, fully glorified Jesus for his church, and he's essentially asking them, church, are you ready? Because it's coming. And it's a message that I believe Renewal Church needs because it's in the Bible, and so we need it. But, but it's so relevant to where we're at. A young church just over a year in where we are seeing God at work, we must heed the message from Jesus to the church in Smyrna and by extension to all churches of all time, including this one right here and this time in this place. So what we've seen in, this, in the Revelation chapter 1, Jesus is described as just stunningly radiant, and he describes churches as lamps that are designed to light and to display glory, to light in the darkness and, and to reflect, to radiate the glory of Jesus. And so the prayer 
the hope in this radiant series is that we will learn to become a vibrant church that radiates the glory of Jesus. And this is a message to the church of Smyrna. We'll pull it up here on the map. We saw this last week. John, who was the author inspired by the Holy Spirit, maybe we'll have a map. Maybe we will not have a map. But if we, if we ever, there you go. So bottom left corner is Patmos. That is where Apostle John was at the time. We talked about the context. We won't get into it because we're not out of time. But he was in Patmos. And last week we saw that the letter first went to Ephesus. And then going up, following the courier path, the mail route, you get next to Smyrna. And we'll follow these in sequence as revealed in the Bible. And so here we're looking at the church in Smyrna in modern-day Turkey. It was ancient. It was called Asia Minor. Now, as you can see, it's very close to the coast. It's not very far. So it was also had a harbor. It was a profoundly wealthy city. It exists to this day. Actually, it's the only church, or the only city, rather, that exists in its exact location today as it did 2,000 years ago. So today it's called Izmir. And so it's a very large city in Turkey, has about 4 million people. Um, but even in ancient days, many, many hundreds of years ago, it was a very large, beautiful, prominent city in ancient Asia Minor. It was a cultural center. And so when I say it was a cultural center, what I mean is that it had streets that were paved and very beautiful. So there was a lot of art and culture. There there is, so it was known for education. It was known for art. It had a, a school of medicine. We have a handful of med students here at Renewal Church. And so there was a school of medicine, not Scott and White, but it was, you know, the uh, Smyrna. And so they, they had a medical school. There was a large library. And so culture, science, art, it was a, it was a cultural hub in the area. It was also along with culture and their context, it was a, a lot of temples. So temples to Greek gods, pagan gods, such as Apollo, Aphrodite, Zeus, and many others, kind of dotted the landscape of Smyrna. And it was considered in the ancient world a very desirable place to live. So like I used to live in Odessa. That's not a desirable place to live. Now, I also lived in Abu Dhabi next to Dubai. That is a desirable place to live. So I've lived in both extremes on a global level on that place rocks and that place, mm, not so much. And this place, Smyrna, was a place you wanted to be. It was, it was desirable and it was, it was prime real estate. It was a great location. It was not only a cultural center, it was also a commercial Center, so a financial hub. It was, as you see on the map, it was a primary trade route. And so there was a lot of trade in large markets. The very word Smyrna actually means myrrh. And so if you remember the wise men who brought baby Jesus gifts, one of them was myrrh. So myrrh in the ancient world was a highly valued, so very expensive Spice, why it was fit for Jesus, who is the king. So it was a very valuable gift. And so myrrh that was heavily exported from Smyrna as being on the harbor and it being a commercial center, it was, it was spread across the empire. Now, myrrh was valuable because it had lots of uses, but two primary uses was for pain management. So, if, so back in the day when they didn't have Tylenol, if you had pain, you could crush this herb and then you could mix it with wine and it served as a sedative. And so it served to kind of numb pain. It was also used to embalm or to cover bodies when they had died before they're buried. And so myrrh was used also for that. And so myrrh was associated with pain and death. There's a reason why myrrh was brought to the infant Jesus. It was a foreshadowing of his future death. He would die and be covered in myrrh. And so it's not surprising, as we'll see in a minute, 
this message to the church of Myrrh, the church of Smyrna, a spice connected to death and pain. According to all of the historical writings, Smyrna was very loyal to the Roman Empire, which made them enemies to anyone that would not bow down and worship the Caesar as God or worship the other pantheon of Greek gods. And so the local rulers and their their desire to maintain their fruitful economy and their loyalty to Rome were heavily persecuting and killing believers in Jesus. So the church of Myrrh, the church of Smyrna, is a church that was familiar with pain and death. Let's read about it in Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And this slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested for ten days, and that you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second This is an amazing letter. It's actually the shortest one of all seven. And it's fascinating because there's no criticism. Like there's not one complaint. Like last week we saw in Ephesus, a lot of compliments. But then also you forgot your first love and so repent and come back. Well, with Smyrna, there's no call to repent. There's not one time that Jesus says, you're doing this wrong and to turn. There's none of that. So there's no criticism. There's no call to repent. They're not doing anything wrong. This is Jesus who knows them. He knows what they're about. And he has nothing to call them out on. He's just encouraging them to be faithful in the face of suffering. So let me give you the theme of this letter, and then we'll break it down step by step. So here's the theme, if you take me notes. Having a big vision of Jesus In the middle of suffering and spiritual warfare. I'll start again. Having a big vision of Jesus. In the middle of suffering and spiritual warfare will result in being fearless and faithful. So there's three parts. Having a big vision of Jesus. Second, in the middle of suffering And spiritual warfare results in, number three, being fearless and faithful. So let's look at those step by step as we work through this text and dig in. First, a big vision of Jesus. This is the starting place. We must have a big vision of Jesus. Verse 8 describes this. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Just like we saw last week, we won't review because we have to keep moving, but this, this concept of to the angel of the church, and so I believe that this is addressed to the angel of the church, and so an actual literal heavenly being, an angel who was a messenger and who's watching over that church. Now, what we're seeing in here, and I think this is relevant for us today when I think about having a big vision for Jesus. I think, I think most people in central Texas, so in Bell County, keep it where we live here, local, most people where we live don't hate Jesus. There are some like atheists or there are some agnostics or Wiccan or other dark Religions, they exist in Bill County, don't kid yourself. But I think the vast majority of people, if you ask them, do you hate Jesus? They would say, no, I don't hate, 
I'm good with Jesus. Jesus is cool. I'm fine with him. Like, I don't like going to church and I don't like to pray. I'm not that religious. I'm not a fanatic or anything, but I'm, I'm, I'm good with Jesus. That's the average person where we live. They maybe even think about him on Sunday sometimes, maybe Christmas and Easter, but they think about him sometimes and they don't hate Jesus and they think he's a good teacher or that he was a good moral person that taught us a good way to live. And, and a lot of people, they even really like Jesus when he gives them good things. Like when that guy asked that hot girl for a date and she actually says yes. And then they're like, whoa, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> or when, when you get that job that you're not even qualified for, but you just lucked out in the interview, you're like, thank you, Jesus. Or you name it. When your football team wins, thank you, Jesus. Now, these days, the Cowboys, there's, there's a lot of prayers needed for them to win. Um, but we'll see if they win again today. Just saying. We, we praise God. We, we thank Jesus. We're so happy about Jesus when things go our way, when we get what we want, when, when that thing, that, and even if it's selfish, but if we get it, then we actually really like Jesus. And, and we get to this mindset, a lot of people where we live, that Jesus exists to give you what you want. Sometimes call it prosperity gospel. There's, there's different ways to look at this, but the idea that that if you have enough faith and do enough good, then, then God will bless you and these blessings are material blessings and he'll give you health every single time and he's always going to heal and he's always going to give you what it is that you want and make you very prosperous financially. And so all of this mindset that we look at Jesus like a cosmic dispenser of gifts, like, like he's like this vending machine and you put in your quarters and those quarters are going to church, Christmas and Easter. It's being a good person, turning over a new leaf, being a good moral person, putting in a quarter vending machine. And then you, you push the button of whatever you want. And then Jesus gives it to you. He gives you what you want because that's what Jesus is. He's this cosmic vending machine. And we have this mentality. And, but if you ask these same people on, do you love Jesus? They'd say, what? With all of your heart, do you have a burning passion for him? Do you enjoy his presence through prayer and the word? Do you yearn to be with his people? Do you have a passion for his gospel? Or are you just bored with Jesus doing the religious thing? You see, when you have a small view of Jesus, then you would just relegate him to just being there to give you whatever it is you want. He becomes your own little personal genie where you have Jesus, and if you rub him the right way, he'll give you exactly what you want. All the power, and yet subject to your will to fulfill your wishes. You see, that is a very small view of Jesus. A high view of Jesus, what we see here in Revelation, a very big vision of Jesus. And he is powerful and he is awe-inspiring and he is sovereign. He is not subject to my will or yours. We are made to be subject to his will. We exist by him and for him, for his glory and the praise of his name. He is the resurrected king and we need a big vision. He is the first and the last. What does that mean? Well, Isaiah 44, verse 6, so Old Testament, Isaiah 44, 6, says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. 
Besides me, there is no God. And then Jesus says that he is the first and the last, the alpha and the omega. Alpha, first letter of the Greek alphabet, omega, last letter, Greek alphabet, first and last. And it says that there is no God besides him. And so Jesus is saying very clearly that he is God. All-powerful, that he is eternal God. First, that he existed before there was creation. He was there at creation. He is last, which means when this existence, when this creation is done and ended, and then he recreates a new creation, that he will still be there at the end because he is above and beyond time. He is king and has authority over time itself. He stands outside of time. Like, this is mind-boggling. Like, our minds can barely even get our heads around it. But what it's communicating is that his, his glory, his wisdom, his power is infinite. And he does not exist to bow down to our will. We exist to bow down to his. He is the first and the last. The one who died and came to life. You see, in the ancient world, the Caesars were all worshipped as God. And yet every few years, the Caesar died. And there was a new Caesar who was worshipped as God. And then he would die. And there was a new one that was worshipped as God. And the cycle continued for hundreds of years. You see, Jesus died for our sins. But then he came to life and is alive forevermore. As you saw in chapter one, the living one, the firstborn of creation, the firstborn, the first, the head of a new creation that will never face a second death. We'll die once and be resurrected, never die again, because Jesus resurrected and is alive forevermore. So Jesus is being so clear, saying he was not just a man. He is God in the flesh, fully God and fully man, which what we celebrate at Christmas, we'll do a series in December to contemplate on the wonders of the incarnation of fully God and fully man. And the results of Jesus' death and resurrection are that our, our debt is paid. We are free from sin the power of sin is broken, that we are made new. We receive his spirit. Like all of these realities, that we're made new because Jesus resurrected and is alive forever. We could say so much more. We have to keep going. We're called to have a big vision of Jesus, which is seeing him as eternal God, first and the last, and as resurrected king, he who died and is alive. And this shows his authority and his sovereignty over sin, over the enemy, and over death. And so what we're seeing here is that Jesus is bigger, bigger than the enemy, bigger than death, bigger than sin. He is better. He is actually even better than life itself. And so he is worthy. He is worthy of us bowing before him. He's worthy of our allegiance, worthy of our obedience, worthy of our trust, worthy of our finances, worthy of our affections, worthy of our dreams, of our future, of our retirement, of our prime. He is worthy of our everything. What happens is sometimes our desires for other things begin to cloud and we can't clearly see the glory of Jesus. And then we begin to have a very small view of Jesus. And when you begin to have a small view of Jesus, everything else in your life begins to unravel and come across uh, apart at its seams because you were made to see and to savor the glory of Jesus. So the starting point is having a big vision of Jesus. The whole point 
of who Jesus is is that we would see that. Number two, we see suffering and spiritual warfare. We see this throughout this brief letter in verse 9. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And this slander of those who say they are Jews but are not, but a synagogue of Satan. He says, I know your tribulation. Now, the word tribulation means anguish or to be burdened means persecution. But, but at its essence, the, the word tribulation means a pressing together, a, a pressing down. So that's what it refers to, a pressing together. And so the word tribulation also describes when, when you would have stones that were pressed down to squeeze the grapes to then create grape juice and ultimately to create wine. And so this is the imagery that they are being pressed down. One of the Greek gods named Dionysus, those of you who follow Greek mythology have heard of him, he was the god of the grape harvest. And so the god of like wine and winemaking. He was the god of partying. So this god Dionysus was worshipped as, as the god who would, who would bring them wine and bring them joy and, and pleasure. So this god of wine and wine making. And so the process of making the wine was to have tribulation, to press down and to squish the grapes. The believers were being pressed down by Dionysus. Afflicted, oppressed, crushed, destroyed, so that he could revel in the joy of the wine. Do you see this picture? Of you have Satan who is actually behind this. So this is demonic at its root. And all under this facade of this Greek God, believers were being seriously oppressed, pressed down. And he says, I know your poverty. Now, when it says poverty, don't think like American poverty, okay? Because even the most poor below poverty line in America still have running water, still have electricity, in most cases, AC. You, you can probably still have a vehicle. You still have clothing to wear. There's, there's still housing and there's still government assistance. And so when you think poverty, don't think Western or American poverty. Like when this is poverty, it's talking about being destitute. It's talking about not having ability to even provide for your family. And here's why. Because in the ancient world, in Smyrna in particular, in order to have a job, to work, you had to be part of a guild, part of like, think of it as a network. And all of these various guilds worship a particular Greek god, a like patron god. And so if you were a blacksmith and you wanted to provide for your family, but you didn't want to be part of that guild because, because that guild would get together and worship Apollo, and so you would say, well, no, I'm not down with that. Like, I worship Jesus. Guess what happened to you? You were out of the guild. You were ousted. You were out of the network. You could not work. You couldn't even get a job. Because you would not worship a Greek god. So these believers were literally starving to death. And the people around them could care less. They wanted to see them die. And they would kill them in the Colosseums. Understand this. You can read Greek mythology and think it's fascinating and enjoy it, but you have to know something. That behind this pantheon of Greek gods was the prince of the power of the air. Satan himself was working through these false gods to kill our brothers and sisters that we will one day meet in glory. 
They were being starved. Can you imagine as a father? Can't even get a job. And you have a skill. You have one. And you can't use it. Because you worship Jesus. And you watch your children dying because there's no way to buy them food. And there is no social services. There's, there's no social workers to go to. It doesn't exist. And if, it, and if it wasn't bad enough of being starved and being crushed, it says that those who say that are Jews but are not are slandering you. The other religious people, the Jews, are actually making it worse. And they're described as a synagogue of Satan. Synagogue refers to the word for gathering. So, so this is a gathering of Satan. This is the people of Satan that were slandering, making all kinds of lies to get the believers in more trouble with the local government. And so you, there was this slander, it says you're being slandered, of being cannibals. Like, oh, because they're, they're, they're talking about eating Jesus. So there was accusation of, oh, they're cannibals, which is preposterous. They're like, oh, they're atheists because they don't have any statues. Like, they don't have any God. Like, these believers are atheists. Isn't that so, like, ironic? But they were accused of that. They were accused of arson because they talked about fire a lot, like the Holy Spirit. And this idea of fire is part of being a believer. And, and they were like, oh, they're arsonists. They have fire over their heads. This is what they actually said about them. And they were accused of treason against the Roman Empire because they rejected Caesar as God. Lies and slander and things were horrible for believers. And you would think to yourself, okay, well, this letter's going to get better. Like, I'm sure if, if you're the church of Smyrna and this letter is being read, you're like, yep, that's true. That's definitely where I'm at. And you think, surely the next sentence is going to make things better. Verse 10, do not fear for what you are about to suffer. You're like, what? What? We have already been suffering. And Jesus says, do not fear for what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. You hear that? Be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. Jesus tells them, no, actually things are going to get worse. There's going to be even more testing. The devil is going to throw you into prison. Now, the people there were being thrown into prison by local government officials. And yet, Jesus says, no, behind that is the devil who's orchestrating and who is pulling the strings of his puppets it is Satan's work, throwing them into prison and making life even harder. Like, can you imagine if you were the mailman and you bring this letter from John who's on Patmos? Hey, Ephesus got their letter. Hey, Smyrna, here's your letter. Can you imagine? So, so happy to read it. And, and you read this, you're like, oh, man, it's getting worse. And it says that there's going to be these 10 days of, of even more tribulation. Now, I'm not sure what those 10 days are. The Bible doesn't say, so I don't know. There's different theories on what that means. Some, some people make it like symbolic or allegorical and say, oh, this refers to 10 straight emperors. There was most persecution. Some say, oh, these 10 days mean like an undefined period of of intense suffering. Others say, oh no, it was 10 years where it was intense. I, I don't know, but I like to read the Bible for what it says. It says 10 days. And so I'm gonna go with 10 days. So I don't, I don't know, it doesn't say 
what this intense 10-day suffering was. But I did do some research. Interesting that the main Colosseum was actually in Rome. Now, remember, Smyrna is in modern-day Turkey. So it's not in Italy. It's in Turkey. But it's part of the empire. And so there were a lot of, like, traveling gladiator shows. And they generally lasted about 10 days. Or they go into a major city like Ephesus or like Smyrna, who, who had a smaller Colosseum, not like in Rome, but had one as well. And so it's possible that there was a gladiator show that was coming into town for its 10 days, and they were going to round up the believers and have them all killed in the show. Because that is what was happening in the first century. What we do know is that they were being imprisoned, persecuted, starved, and killed for sport. And behind all of this was Satan. So they had all of this suffering, but the Bible is so clear to put in context of spiritual warfare. It's definitely suffering, but it was spiritual warfare. And I think we forget this. I think as believers in the West, part of how Satan works is that he wants all of us deceived and to forget that it's real. He wants us to think that there is no spiritual warfare. He wants us so blind and so deceived that on that day when when you woke up and you were like just down and you like can't even hardly explain why you were down that night, or my wife asks me, hey, so how did you sleep last night? I'm like, you know, now that you ask, like, it was kind of a restless sleep. And that was me last night. I kept waking up, and, and this morning I was praying early and felt like, man, like it was just, it was just a night of where I felt like there was some serious spiritual warfare that was happening all around me. And I can share so many stories of But there are so many times when you can't even put your finger on why you're feeling anxious or why you're depressed or why you're so afraid of something or why are you doubting God's goodness or his sovereignty or his plan in your life or why is it that on a random moment you just feel this intense like (gasps) pulling towards something evil or unhealthy for you. And we think, oh, it's just in my head. We think, oh, oh, I, I needed to get a better, better sleep last night. Or we think, oh, it's, it's, it's just weird. You have to be aware that this is actual. It's not just you. It is spiritual warfare. There's a real enemy, and he's seeking whom to devour. And so Jesus sends this message to the church and says, are you ready for this. Are you ready? If you've known me for a while, you know that I love Lord of the Rings. Like I love it. And I love in the two towers early on when Aragon and Legolas, um, they're hunting down uh, orcs that have taken away Pippin and Merry. Um, and, and they're trying to catch up to this, this evil horde. And they're chasing them And Aragon says, there is an evil at work here that gives speed to these beasts and sets their will against us. I love Tolkien. It's like he knew the Bible or something. He did. And there's an evil force that sets its will against us. You. There is. And the more that we live thinking that it's not real or that it's just pretend or whatever, then Satan has you exactly where he wants you. It's very real. But Jesus' message to the spiritual warfare, to the temptations, to the assaults, to all of their suffering, he says in verse 10, do not fear. And he tells them, be faithful. So those two key words, he says, don't fear, 
and be faithful, which brings to the last step of this theme. Fearless and faithful. Let's put it all together and see this theme again. It's having a big vision of Jesus in the middle of suffering and spiritual warfare will result in you being fearless and faithful. So the question is not if, it's when. If you're a follower of Jesus, not if, it's when. When life gets hard. When you're called to take a stand. When the enemy puts his target on your back. When God the Father calls your number to get in the game and he wants to see what you're made of. And he wants to test your faith and put you in the front lines. When he calls your number, what are you made of? And are you going to crumble or are you going to be a man or woman of God? Remember, Smyrna means myrrh. And that spice, which was bitter to the, the taste, was beautiful to the scent. So when you smelled it, it was a beautiful aroma. But do you know when myrrh would release that beautiful aroma? When it was crushed. Myrrh, the spice, not crushed. Didn't really smell very much. But as soon as you crushed it, it would release a fragrant aroma. You see, I think sometimes as believers, we want relief from what's hard. But what God wants is refinement. So what do you want more? Relief or refinement? You want to radiate the glory of God? Do you want to give off this aroma of the glory of Jesus, you have to be crushed. And what will give you the strength to be fearless and to stay faithful to Jesus when, not if, when it gets hard? I can tell you it won't be your bank account. It won't be your hobbies. Positive thinking, you know, Dr. Phil and Oprah, sorry, that ain't going to get it done. Looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Only looking to Jesus, the first and the last, the one who died and is alive today and forevermore. It is only drawing near to the throne of grace. It is only through Jesus, through walking in the spirit, experiencing his presence when you read his word, devour it, and you pray and spend time with other believers in discipleship relationships, it is only following Jesus that you will have the strength to endure in the middle of the onslaught that the enemy is bringing. And I want to just tell you this right now up front so that there's no false advertisement. If you're a guest and kind of checking out Renewal Church, I want you to have a fair warning. Because it seems like every single new member, all of a sudden, their life gets hard. It's like uncanny. It's, I can't even explain it to you. It's like we're being under attack or something. It's like joining this church is going to put you on the front of the battle. And if you don't want to be in the front of the battle, if you want to be in the back, man, I don't know, this renewal might not be for you. But if you want to be in the front, if you're willing to be crushed in order to have this glorious aroma, which is worship to God to be displayed. If you want to radiate the glory of God, if you want to experience real transformation, if you want to be exposed for the sinner that you are and to receive the grace of God that is, you can't even hardly explain it. If you want to experience something like I've heard from different guys, it's like almost every day I talk to someone in this room or those that are online that tell me, man, I barely even recognize myself 
I like, I'm so different as a dad, as a husband. I like tithe now. I have faith now. I'm a mission at work now. It's like, I want to be there at 7.30 to set up. What's happening to me? What is going on? Like, it's like, I'm not even myself anymore. And I'm like, welcome to life in Christ. Lived out in community. Yeah, there's a real enemy. And he's at work. But Jesus is bigger. He's better. He is sovereign. And so we will keep drawing near and keep spreading his renewal, keep praying for each other, keep loving each other well, because it's Jesus says, I know your tribulation. I know. I know what you're going through. I'm with you. I'm right there, son and daughter. I know what you're going through. It doesn't escape me. I will give you my grace. I will give you my strength. I will give you more of me to sustain you so that you can display my glory. He is so near the brokenhearted. And he offers spiritual blessings. In verse 9, it says, I know you're poor, but you're rich. You're rich in my blessings, in my presence, in my grace. You're rich in Christ. And I love how the verse ends. He says, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life, the victory crown, the prize, which really is Jesus himself. Jesus is the prize. Christ is enough. Verse 11 ends with saying, yes, you will die, but you'll be resurrected, and you will not die again. You will not be hurt by the second death. You will never see death alone. You will not see the lake of fire. You will experience the presence of God forever. Death is not the end. It's not the end. These light and temporary afflictions are preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. May we be a church that is fearless, that is faithful, and who is ready for whatever God has for us as we radiate his glory.